Hello again. Today is our last Sunday together in the book of Joshua. Next weekend, as you've already been reminded, is Easter. Let me join David in adding a personal invitation. Our theme next week is romance in the war zone. We'll reflect on how the cross death of Jesus and his resurrection are God's real-time, real history, definitive and decisive fulfillment of that promise that his people were to count on as they left Egypt and as they went into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 1, the Lord your God who is going ahead of you, he will fight for you. It's what God does in every way and every day, always. Great news for us today. Join us next weekend, Friday and Sunday. So for one last Sunday, the book of Joshua, today chapter 7 and 8 together, working with the God who's working with you. Two chapters, 30 minutes, let's go. Grab your Bible or Download a Bible app and turn to Joshua chapter 7. Now, to understand what happens in chapter 7 and 8, we need to remember the high points of how God did everything he could to help his people work with him as he worked with them. Two peak moments, two key lessons as he leads them into the land of promise. After weeks of preparation, getting together under God, All two million people watch as the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord their God, step into the rushing flooded waters of the Jordan River, and immediately the river stops flowing. The flooded waters of Jordan stop, and the people follow the Ark across the Jordan River. The main character in this whole event is the ark, the tangible symbol of the presence of God going before them. The main point of that whole scene is that to work with the God who's at work with you, you have to let God lead. And to let God lead means to follow him where he is going. He is not just the navigator getting you safely to your desired destination. He determines the destination, the direction, and the route. And they have their first big win. Uh, Well, God's first big win. A win over the forces of nature. And then after some more preparation rituals, giving all of themselves to living under and in God, we saw last week from chapter 6, the next high point in their journey, the fall and destruction of the city that was the gateway city into the land, Jericho. A win over the powers, not just of nature and not just people, but the powers behind the powers of people. And it happened without them lifting a spear or a sword. Following the Ark of the Covenant, they marched around the city every day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, and they watched as the walls come a-tumbling down, right? And when you let God lead, what you get to do is you got to watch God win. Watch who win? God win. Victory belongs to the Lord, as we saw last week, and he will win. Nothing, not even a virus we can't control, can take God out. He will win. Amen? Amen? Can I hear one from Merritt, B.C., maybe all the way from Boston, Massachusetts? 
Amen. So with momentum on their side, they immediately take on the next city in their journey, the city of Ha'i. Well, A-I, as we pronounce it in English. And what happens? What happens when you watch God win? Right on the heels of those two big wins, God wins. They have a sudden, surprising, decisive, and definitive defeat. The only defeat in the entire book of Joshua. The only recorded loss of life by God's people in this entire record of God's people conquering God's land. Let's pick it up in Joshua chapter 7, verse 2. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth on the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. The wheels of this whole campaign suddenly fall off. And the whole program grinds to a halt. And Joshua goes before God And it's basically, God, what just happened here? Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Remaining there till evening, the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua has this conversation with God, bringing his confusion before God, the place he should bring it, It's the same kind of conversation Moses and God's people had many times in the wilderness. God, why did you let us down? We let you lead. We watched you win and now you let us down. Why? Listen to them. Verse 7, Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay On the other side of Jordan. And then Joshua, good leader that he is, blames himself. What did I do wrong? I'm sure he remembers watching and feeling sorry for Moses and now identifying with him personally as at times the weight on Moses' shoulders becomes too much. And like Moses, Joshua said, verse 8, pardon your servant, Lord, What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? Can you see how he's blaming himself? I must have got my signals crossed, Lord. Did I do something wrong? And what can I do now that I put these people in this mess? And we need to stop right there and get something off the table. A lot of people read this chapter and say, you know, they lost Because they trusted in their own strength and their own wisdom. They didn't trust God. Joshua must have been overconfident. Some people people see in this story, Joshua was one failure as a leader. He doesn't wait 
for God to lead. But that's not what we're told. God does not say to Joshua that he did anything wrong. This was not a failure on Joshua's part. And then Joshua says something that gets to the heart of the issue. Lord, forget about us. Forget about me. What about your name? Verse 9. The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Good question, Joshua. It is about my name. And it is all about what it means to be a people of my name. Before we go further, we need to do a little bit of a flashback. Remember those two big lessons these people were supposed to remember? Let God win or let God lead and watch God win. Do you remember what they were supposed to learn as they let God lead and watch God win? Do you remember from chapter 3 or chapter 4, I'm sorry? God makes it very clear to them after their first big win, the crossing of the Jordan, at that ceremony where they set up a bunch of memorial stones so that future generations would ask, what do these stones mean? Do you remember that? Chapter 4, verse 21. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. So, that's what they were to remember about what God did as they let God lead. But, they're also told very clearly why God does it. What they are supposed to learn from what God did. Verse 42. He did this so that, so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. That there is a God above all gods. A God that made it all, controls it all. There is a God that is not a made up God. And we can hear these people say, yes, go God. They love that lesson. Now that's a pump-me-up confidence builder to go forward on. With God, we can do anything, conquer everything, get everything. But that's only part of the lesson. And it was the lesson for the people of the land they're conquering to learn. What's fascinating to me is that this crisis we are in right now, we're made to realize in new ways that as an entire globe, that there are forces of nature we can't control. It's making some people ask, is there really a God who is overall? Not who caused it, but who might help me in it? Good question. That's why we have the Alpha Course starting in about 11 days. So what was the big why for God's people? The nations were to learn there is a God over all. The last part of chapter 4. And so that you, you, God's people, might always fear the Lord your God. 
What? Fear God? What's with that? Well, let's talk a bit for what it means to fear God. Sometimes we say, well, that, that's just a strong metaphor, meaning, meaning reverence or awe, respect. And that's true, it is that. But it's much more than that. The best way I know how to translate into plain language what it means to fear God is that it simply means to take God seriously. Really seriously. Let me tell you some stories that show that we actually know intuitively, experientially, that fear of God, of God even is a good thing, a necessary thing. I spent one summer in my mid-twenties uh, tree planting, reforesting in uh, northern BC. It was a piecework job, averaging 10 cents a tree. The more trees you planted in a day, the more money you made. And there were rules, strict rules, about how far apart and how you planted. And the terrain was not Alberta flat, with deadfall all over, side hills. A clear cut is not clear, just saying. But I discovered very quickly that tree planting was more mental than physical. It was, it was actually quite simple, really. It was, it was hard, incredibly hard, but it wasn't complicated. Number one, set a goal. How many trees do you want to plant that day? Number two, just decide that there's nothing that's going to keep you from accomplishing that goal. And number three, get into a rhythm and stay into it through everything. That's all. That's it. Set a goal. Decide there's nothing going to beat, uh, keep you from accomplishing that goal. And get a rhythm going and stay in it. One day in early June, it was raining hard getting harder and harder all day long, and it was cold. By early afternoon, almost everyone had quit for the day, went to their vehicles or to our vehicles to wait for the two of us, the two of us who were determined to let nothing stop us from reaching our goal. Nothing. There might have been some that were saying that our real goal was to prove that we could outlast the other guy. And there may have been some truth to that, both of us, we were about 75 or 80 meters apart, heads down, in our planting rhythm, ignoring everything else. And then, boom! Both of us jumped and felt this weird tingle up our backs. And immediately we both looked over to the other person sheepishly to see if the other guy had seen us jump. And as we looked at each other, we both saw, halfway in between us, a steaming, smoking, tree stump split in half by lightning. Both of us decided to abandon our goals, stop trying to prove ourselves, and take lightning seriously. Really seriously. It was more than awe. It was fear. And it's a good thing. Fast forward 18 years, when our first child learned to drive, got her license, was given the keys to the car. Our greatest fear as parents was that she did not really comprehend at a level that informed her decision-making and even controlled her instincts. She did not comprehend the seriousness of handling a vehicle on the roads. And LaDonna and I prayed. We actually prayed. We did. 
that early in her driving experience, and three years later, our sons, that they would have just a little accident. Not one in which anyone got hurt. And Lord, please not one that damages someone else's vehicle. Lord, just a little thing so that they will learn how to take seriously the privilege, the responsibility of driving. We decided that whatever it cost to fix the car would be worth it to help them to learn to take driving seriously, really seriously. Were we bad parents for wanting that to happen to our children? I, I don't think so. You know the scary thing? It happened with, with both of them. About four to six weeks in, one hit the curb going around a corner at an intersection, and I forget what the other one did. It was, it was minor. But both of them developed an appropriate fear. They learned, for the most part, to take driving seriously. One more example, a little closer to home in time and space. How many people took seriously the potential effect of COVID-19 when it first hit? The most common question I heard, and I wondered myself, do you think it's really that bad? Don't you think it might be just a little overblown? If we all would have been a little bit more fearful, we just might be a little safer now. This morning, as LaDonna and I were enjoying our morning coffee, we, uh, she said, actually, I, I wonder what it will look like when it's all over. And then in her nursing mind, she said, will we learn to take airborne viruses seriously? Will we learn that everyone around it that we meet, everyone we pass, there's this invisible two-meter cylinder that contains airborne particles that we just emit even as we breathe? So I said, well, I know the real question you're asking. <laughs> will Mel learn to take this seriously? And I said, might it look something like this? <laughs> she thought that might be a good start. So entrepreneurs, get your production line ready. Designer cones are the next thing going. And since you got it here, there's Ellerslie royalties to consider. Okay, just saying. So here's the deal. When you let God lead and watch God win, you learn one of two things. We either learn to take God seriously or we learn to just drift into taking God for granted. And gravity, doing what gravity does, taking God seriously is not where we naturally go. Everything tends to flow downhill. When we let God lead and watch God win, we start saying, like David, Psalm 18, with your help I can advance against any troop. With my God I can leap over a wall. We love that message. But before we even realize it, like David had to, I can do anything very quickly becomes, I can't do anything wrong. There's no way we can lose. We actually lose a healthy fear. The question for us from this account is when I let God lead and watch God win, am I learning to take God seriously or am I learning to just take God for granted? 
Let's go back to poor Joshua, confused and devastated. You see, Joshua has no idea that something else happened at Jericho besides letting God lead and watching God win. Something that was all about taking God seriously. Chapter 7, verses 10 and 12. 10 to 12. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Why are you going down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them into their own possessions. That is why Israel cannot stand against their enemies. They turned their backs and run because they have made liable to de- they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Joshua still doesn't know exactly what's happened, and most of the people don't know, although it's certainly hard to imagine that nobody knew. And it's something certainly that would have become apparent over time, and so God has to deal with it right away. So it's time to go back and see what the big deal was. The, gig, the, the, the Jericho story at the very end of chapter 6 ends with this statement. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Things are looking good. Look out, peoples. Look out, AI. Here comes Joshua. But, it says, the Israelites, not Joshua, the people. Folks, it's not always the leader's fault, okay? Leaders, even good leaders in any environment, are both resourced by the people in their organizations in ways they don't often realize, but they are also restricted by those same people in ways that hit them hard. But the Israelites, it says, were unfaithful. That's a word that is used in other places for things like adultery. They did not take seriously the covenant they had made with God. They were unfaithful about the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Parents, have you ever said something to your child very clearly, very specifically, and watched as your child looked right at your eyes and did exactly what you said they were not to do? Yeah, not my kid. Well, maybe not your first kid. Perhaps not your second. But I promise you, it'll happen with the third. What happens? What do we do? What's our first response? Our first response is the Joshua one. Oh, I must be a bad parent. She's not Taking me seriously is what we think. And our question becomes, what do I have to do to get him to take me seriously? That's what's happening here. So let's talk about these devoted things. Just like the Ark of the Covenant was the main character in the stories of crossing the Jordan and the defeat of Jericho, in the story of Ai, rooted in the story of Jericho, the main character in this story is these devoted things. 
In chapter 6, on, on the seventh day, just before the city falls to the ground, just before, so it's fresh on their minds, Joshua gives the people clear and specific instructions from God. Instructions about letting God lead and watching him win, but instructions that included a clear test to see if as they let God lead and watch God win, they would also take God seriously. Really seriously. Chapter 6, verse 16 says, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in, in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the artifacts of articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. This idea of devoted things is, is not an out-of-the-blue random idea. It's not new to God's people. We don't have time to review the history of this, but, but we need to see one thing here. You can't see it in our English translations, but those two words, devoted and destroyed, are actually two forms of the same word. Devoted, which essentially refers to this idea of separating, excluding. It's, it's like the word holy, very, very similar concept to holy. All the people and proper property of Jericho was to be separated, devoted in one of two ways. Precious metal saved and devoted not for the people, but to be used for God. All the rest of the property and the people were to be destroyed, not to be used by or incorporated into the life of the people at all. The reason the people were to be destroyed, to show that the practices of these people, which were some of the most degenerate, degraded practices ever recorded in human history, those practices were not tolerated by God. Folks, these were not innocent people that Israel defeated the people of Canaan were known for approving and actually for requiring in their religious practices things like adultery. Well, you can't tell me every, I can't have another woman. I'm doing it for God. It's got worse. In their religious practices were incest, child sacrifice, Sodomy, bestiality, these were not just practiced, not just turned a blind eye on. They were commonplace and normative. The culture of the people of Canaan was destined for destruction. They were destroying themselves. And God wants his people protected from that, not to be in danger of being seduced by those things, rationalizing anything like that. God's instructions were that if you did not treat these things as devoted to him, as, as dead to you, cut off to you, you would experience the punishment equal to the crime. You were making the choice when you did that to become devoted in the other sense, in the destruction sense. Devoted simply means that you are totally separated either for God or from God. All of the people and property of Jericho was to be separated, devoted in one of two ways. 
As we move forward in the story to the New Testament, to what we celebrate next weekend, we can see from how Jesus lived this out for us. He devoted himself to being cut off from God so that we could be devoted in living 100% for God. That's, Paul t- picks up in this concept in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. He says, I am crucified, cut off, dead to myself, cut off from my past, not alive to my past. Romans 6 talks about this as well. In Christ, I am crucified in Christ, and yet I live. Well, no, it's not really me living. It's, it's Christ who is alive in me. I have been cut off to my old life to be alive to a new life. Now let's go back to Ai. One man, Achan, from the tribe most favored by God, the privileged tribe of Judah, from which the great King David would come, the tribe through which Jesus would come. Achan sees some of this stuff and perhaps even looks up at God at least in his mind, and says, what a waste. Look at this beautiful robe. That would look so good on my wife. It would make her feel so good after years of wandering. I could bless her with this robe. And look at this gold and silver. I I won't be too greedy. I'll I'll just take enough to, just enough to get established when we settle in the land. What else might he be thinking? We... We know because we've said it. You know, God says we're special. God would, God would really want me to have just a little bit of this. But God says, you're not taking me seriously. If you got what it means to be special in me and for me, you'd be taking me way more seriously. And so we're not going to read it, but God gives Joshua a process by which it would have been revealed to all the people as they're watching, progressively, gradually, who is the offender? First, which tribe he came from? And then after the tribe, which clan of that tribe? And then which family of that clan? And finally, which man from that family? Talk about suspense in front of all these people. Why? So that they all spend time reflecting, thinking, wondering. So they'll remember that it's serious business to not take God seriously. And to give time to the man from God's people like he has done for the people of the land. To give them time to bring it out in the open. To confess. To give Achan a chance to admit it before he gets busted. But Achanly, Achan brazenly hangs on. Until he's busted. As the story rolls out, we see two things God wants them to know so they will learn to take God seriously. We're going to quickly see these things from the rest of the chapter in chapter 8. Why is it we don't take God seriously? And number two, what happens when we do take God seriously? Why is it we don't take God seriously? What is it that trips us up? Well, we see in how Achan responded when he's busted. Look in verse 19 of chapter 7. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. 
Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So as I read that, I'm saying, okay, is this a confession or is this an excuse? Well, it had to be forced out of him, so you've got to realize this is something short of true, repentant confessing. I think Achan is doing what is so easy, so natural to do in a confession. We give an excuse. Explain it away. Here's why I did it. Is that taking it seriously? Folks, God doesn't seem to think so. But there's something more here that is so clear and, well, so scary. What does Achan say? I saw, I coveted, coveted, I took. I saw, and as I'm looking at this, dwelling on it, I really, really began to like it, to see how good it would be for me. I could really use this, and so I took. Does that sound at all familiar? The exact pattern, the exact words of Adam and Eve way back in the garden. Do you see what Achan's problem is? Achan's problem is the same as Eve's problem, the same as the tendency of my heart, and what it is that keeps me from taking God seriously. This is Achan's problem. And this is my problem. We drift into taking God for granted and not ser- taking God seriously and our natural tendency is to make the world revolve around me. That's our problem. It's the number reason It's the number one reason that what God says does not make sense to us. Well, it just doesn't make sense in my situation. Yeah, because I'm making the world revolve around me, right? It's heavily, heavily involved in our worrying. It's basically the reason behind our anger. It's a huge piece of our broken relationships. And it's the center of our unmet expectations. Trying to make the world revolve around me. Making me big. And not just the world small, but making God small. And that's a big deal. Every new situation, COVID-19 is just one example, is an opportunity for us to evaluate. How is my reaction, my thinking, my feelings, my frustrations, my expectations, an indicator that I'm making it all about me? And how might I react if I took God more seriously? Are you taking God seriously? 
Some of us know it's time to do that. Would you please just, just get it out there in the open with someone before you're cornered or it gets too late and just think about one thing you might do to show yourself and God that you want to take God seriously. Which leads to the second thing that happens at Ai about learning to take God seriously. Chapter 7 is all about the why and the how we tend to drift toward not taking God seriously. But chapter 8 is the rest of the lesson of Ai. What happens when we do take God seriously? When Israel realizes God is serious about taking him seriously, and when they allow Achan to experience the consequence of his choice to attach himself to the things that were devoted to destruction... God now shows them the flip side. To take God seriously is to take his grace and mercy and love as seriously as he does. Really, really seriously. When we take God seriously, he unleashes his grace, pours out his love, lavishes on us his mercy in overflowing kinds of ways. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Even though we have been unfaithful, he is faithful to his promise to forgive and to cleanse our sins from all unrighteousness. If we come under Jesus, God says, I cut him off so that you can be fully devoted to me in the right kind of way. Let's just briefly see how God shows his people that. God, God says to them, as, as chapter 8 begins, let's get back on track and let me lead. Watch me win as you take me seriously, really seriously this time. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, I've delivered you into the hands of King Ai. I've delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people and his land. You shall do to Ai its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Wow, isn't that amazing? You've dealt with it. I'm forgetting it. Let's do it again. Let me lead. Watch me win and take me seriously. That's what God does. And that's why it's right that we take time next week to reflect for the whole weekend on the peak event in all of history where God clears the deck and says, let's do this one more time together. But it actually gets way more better than that. Not only does God let them start over, now that they've learned the lesson of taking him seriously, well, at least for the time being, God tells them that the rules for Ai will be different than the rules for Jericho. Different in an amazing kind of way. The end of verse 2. You shall go do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except, except for one thing. You may carry off the plunder and livestock for yourselves. They're yours. Can you believe that? Do you realize how powerful that line is? God does not say, okay, we're going to do this one more time just to make sure you get it. You better get it right this time. No. God says, I'll trust you to get it. I want to show you how serious I am about blessing you. This is, this is as great an example of the grace of God as you will ever see until Jesus. 
God does not hold it over our heads that we blew it. So now we have to prove it to make it up. God's grace not only forgives, but it allows me to experience, well, in the language of the book of Romans, brotherhood with Jesus. Riches in Jesus, because that's how Jesus sees us. It shows how big God's love is that is willing and waiting and wanting to unleash for you as you take him seriously. Isn't that amazing? What does God want us to experience as we take him seriously? The book of Hebrews puts it this way. So then, let us approach God's throne of wrath, his throne of authority. No. Let us approach his throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us right at our point of need. That's the God who reaches to you when you simply take him seriously. So is there any way that you think you might need to take God more seriously? Perhaps it's getting on the table something you've been hiding, denying, ignoring for a long time so that you can experience fully how serious God is about wanting you to live in the pressed down, shaken together, running over love of Jesus. Receive it, live in it, and release it. The psalmist says, come little children, let me teach you the fear of the Lord, taking God seriously, so that you will no longer fear anything else. Now that's amazing, amazing grace.